Coming up on the Public Radio Hour, we hope to tickle your funny bone, pique your musical interest, and give you some expert advice on staying COVID safe. It does feel a bit like deja vu. Hudson Alpha's Dr. Neil Lamb gives it to us straight about COVID's Delta variant. But we're in a different situation now with a different version of the virus. Infected individuals have a higher level of virus that they are sharing with others. We'll also have some fun with comedian Kimberly Wilson. Do you have any hidden talents? Well, I had a TikTok thing called Juggling Weird Stuff Badly (laughs) um, for a while. And we'll preview an unusual music event this Sunday at Asbury Church that you may not want to miss. Top-notch performers all around. I think that uh, anybody who decides to come to this concert is really going to be in for a treat. It's our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. The Public Radio Hour is next. This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. Produced in the studios of listener-supported WLRH. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. Over the next hour, Arts Underground and All Things Considered host Katie Ganaway will introduce you to local comedian Kimberly Wilson in the latest edition of Funny You Should Ask. Morning Blend host Tom Freilich sits down with Kevin Lay and Aaron Hulskamp-Boone to tell us about a unique chamber music concert happening this Sunday at 3 p.m. at Asbury Church titled Palestrina to Palink. But first, the COVID pandemic is literally worse than ever. But that really hasn't stopped people from gathering in large crowds indoors and outdoors, which is being blamed in part for the alarming number of cases we're seeing. So when we need the latest facts and perspective, thank goodness we can call on our good friend, Dr. Neil Lamb, Vice President of Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Here's our conversation. So things aren't exactly looking great right now. Uh, ICU beds in Alabama and neighboring states are either full or nearly full. We're seeing spikes in COVID cases in public schools. Nursing homes are struggling. Cases are also rising in Alabama jails and prisons. Dr. Lamb, give us some perspective on where we are now battling COVID compared to where we were this time last year. It does feel a bit like deja vu that you're seeing headlines about rising cases and concerns about a fall surge. I think that there are a couple of really key differences that uh, distinguish last year and this year. And the first clearly is vaccines. And we can dig more into that, but we know that vaccines do a really great job of keeping people from becoming seriously ill and hospitalized and on a ventilator. And we know that in general, they provide some protection against getting infected or being or developing symptoms of COVID. Now, the other piece that differentiates last year from this year is the Delta variant. And this is a variant that is much more infectious than any of the previous versions of the SARS-CoV-2 virus we've dealt with. And it has the ability to cause breakthrough infections, which is why you see some of those individuals that have been vaccinated that are still developing mild symptoms. One of the more troubling things I've seen is how people are gathering in large groups for all sorts of events, concerts, and other activities, many people not wearing masks. I know of one local music show last month 
where 15 people caught COVID while standing in the crowd. I'm hoping you can help us understand what's happening here and how the virus is actually spreading so easily, kind of the nuts and bolts of it. The show I'm referring to was inside. It was in a medium-sized room that had a relatively low ceiling. I'm not sure if these are factors or not, but if you're standing in a crowd in an enclosed space, what are the factors that affect your chances of catching COVID? It's important for us to remember that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, whether we're talking about previous variants or the Delta variant, is spread through two primary ways. One is through large droplets, those larger respiratory droplets that we cough or sneeze out. But it also is spread through much smaller droplets, droplets that are are more like a very fine mist when we breathe out or when we talk. And those can stay in the air for longer periods of time. So, you know, in, in some ways, it's very fair to say that this virus is airborne. It can remain in the air. Now, it doesn't remain in the air for hours and hours. But if you think about the virus being spread through the air, then when you are in close spaces with lots of people where there's not a lot of ventilation, maybe there you're in an indoor space tightly packed with people, or you are together maybe with people just around a table. Maybe it's only three or four people, but nobody has a mask, and you're together for long periods of time. You are able to spread that through either those larger respiratory droplets or that more, those more finer um, airborne particles. So that time of exposure seems to be really important. Time of exposure is important. The conditions in which you're in outdoors is safer because there's more room for the, for the virus to disperse. Spaces where people are very close up next to each other. Are people wearing masks? Are they able to distance? All of those factors really come into play. And then when you layer the Delta variant on top of it, we know that the variant contains a genetic mutation that means the virus is more easily able to fuse with human cells. So it can infect our cells much more efficiently. And we see data that people who are infected are producing much higher amounts of virus in their respiratory system, so they are spreading larger amounts of virus into the air around us. And those two pieces are what we think are the reason why you're seeing breakthrough cases, because you're being exposed to a much larger amount of virus when you're around somebody that is infected with Delta, And it can quickly infect our body cells before our antibodies necessarily have a chance to block that um, block that uh, ability to fuse with our cells. We're talking with Dr. Neil Lamb, Vice President of Educational Outreach at Hudson Alpha here on the Public Radio Hour. The last time we talked, Dr. Lamb, we discussed the term viral load, and you seem to have touched on that again uh, in your previous comments tonight. Please redefine this term for us and remind us of how viral load is tied to transmission of the virus and how much of a game changer COVID's Delta variant has been. Viral load refers to the amount of virus that an infected individual is producing or the amount of virus that you may be exposed to when you come in contact with someone that is infected. There's a certain threshold of virus that you have to be exposed to for yourself to become infected. At least that's, that's what we seem to understand from the science. Is it that your body can fight off smaller loads or how does that work exactly? It's thought that smaller amounts of virus 
your immune system has a better chance at, at, at defeating them, at preventing them from, from infecting you. If you think about maybe a handful of soldiers, a handful of, you know, six or seven soldiers can probably fight off uh, a group of seven or eight or ten invaders. It's much more difficult for them to fight off a group of a hundred invaders. Some folks are going to slip through, they're going to break through the line. The same is true with the Delta variant or, or with any virus your body does a good job at recognizing defenders and trying to defeat them. But when there's a high amount of them, even individuals that have a strong immune response, even individuals that have been vaccinated, you may have some of those virus particles make it through your initial lines of defense, and individuals could then become infected. If our listeners do find themselves attending gatherings with large groups of people, uh, other than masking, other than making sure that uh, you're, you're vaccinated, what can people do to protect themselves and protect others? One of the best analogies that I heard early on in the pandemic was to think about when you're with a crowd of people, if someone in that room was, was smoking a, a, a cigarette or a cigar, would you be able to smell the cigarette smoke? And that concept that the virus travels through the air in the same way that smoke travels through the air. It's being aware of your surroundings and situations. Am I in a space that if someone were smoking, I would be able to tell that? In that case, you're probably in a space where there's some risk. Now, have you been vaccinated? If you've been vaccinated, that gives you a significant level of protection. It doesn't make you bulletproof, but that's another factor for yourself to take into account. Are you wearing a mask? That's another layer of protection. So it really is being aware of your surroundings, thinking about the amount of time you're in that space. And if someone in that room were infected with the Delta variant, would you be in a situation where you would likely to have been exposed? In that local music show that I referenced a little while ago where 15 people or more caught COVID uh, in the crowd, uh, some of the people I talked to were indeed vaccinated and they still got sick. You used the word, it doesn't make you bulletproof a moment ago. What does the vaccine do? And with all the talk of possible booster shots and things like that, do you see people continuing to uh, increase their trust in vaccines or what, what do you think about that? There's been a lot of discussion in the news lately about vaccines and about their efficiency and about breakthrough cases. Remember, the vaccines were developed specifically to keep people who had been infected from getting seriously ill. They were designed to keep us from overloading our hospital systems and finding ourselves in situations where we have to do more stringent measures that nobody wants to do, like, like lockdowns and stay from home. It just so happens that the vaccines that were developed and that have received emergency use authorization did a really fantastic job of also protecting us against infection from the earlier versions of the variant, which is why this uh, late, late this winter and in the spring and summer, you saw the CDC relax the guidelines and say, if you've been vaccinated, you can take off your mask. Well, we're in a different situation now with a different version of the virus that can infect us much more easily and that infected individuals have a higher level of virus that they are sharing with others. So again, we come back to the vaccines do a good job of keeping us from getting seriously ill. But with Delta, 
they offer less protection. It's not zero protection, but less protection against getting infected or having mild symptoms. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to know people who have to be hospitalized that are vaccinated. But in the overall scheme of things, you still have a much, much smaller percentage of individuals that have been vaccinated that are finding themselves in that situation. So it still provides us a significant level of coverage. We just have to recognize that it doesn't always guarantee that if we're in a risky situation, we won't ourselves become infected. Dr. Lamb, I'll have to be honest, considering the behavior and attitudes of a certain percentage of our population towards vaccines and masking and that sort of thing. At this point, I'm starting to have some serious doubts about whether COVID is actually controllable, much less beatable. Please say something to convince me that I'm wrong. There are uh, a number of people that are asking the same question that you are. Are we ever going to get COVID under control? Are we always going to live in this roller coaster situation of uh, masking and unmasking and watching rising case numbers and then watching falling case numbers. So there's a little bit of a crystal ball gazing that needs to take place here. And, and I'll be the first to admit, my crystal ball was broken by COVID many times. Uh, and so I, I want to be really careful against making predictions. That said, the people that I follow, the scientists that I trust, believe that we are beginning to approach a time where COVID-19 is something that is less pandemic worldwide and will be something more like flu, where we know that there are windows of time when it's easier for us to get infected. We have ways to think about treating it. We have ways to reduce the frequency. And we've learned to live with it. Now, clearly, when you look at the Delta numbers, the Delta variant numbers around the world, we are still very much in pandemic mode. I don't even think we're going to hit herd immunity. That number just keeps shifting, especially as the virus keeps mutating. But we're going to arrive at a place where the global population, a significant percentage of them have immunity either because they got vaccinated or because they got COVID and they built up an immunity. The key question is how long do both of those immunities last? And that's why you're now seeing this push around boosters how long does you, are, are your antibody levels able to neutralize against the virus? What about the other parts of your immune system, like your T-cell responses? There's so many pieces we still don't know, and we're having to respond to the real-world data to try to figure out what we do with that. But I believe many people feel that we are going to approach a time where we learn to live with it, and it is much less disruptive than it currently is right now. Words of Hope from Dr. Neil Lamb, Vice President of Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features, produced in the studios of WLRH. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. From Words of Hope to Words of Hilarity, with this latest edition of Funny You Should Ask, an occasional series produced by Katie Ganaway for the Arts Underground which airs Saturday afternoons at 2 o'clock. The series explores Huntsville's burgeoning live comedy scene, and this time around, we meet comedian Kimberly Wilson, who's also co-founder of Shenanigans Comedy Theater, a nonprofit performing arts group. I got involved in comedy in middle school because I realized that I was shy and life was kind of passing me by. So I figured out that if you can make people laugh, they like you. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the roots of the roots of the roots. And then... <laughs> 
I didn't really do anything with that until I was living in Austin and I started doing improv there. Mm -hmm. I studied with Comedy Sports Austin and also the Institution Theater with a gentleman named Tom Booker. And I was one of the co-founders of a queer improv group called the $3 Bills. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And at the time, I kind of toyed with stand-up, but I didn't really do much with it. And just kind of pushed that back, did improv, and then after that, started really concentrating on school and career because I was going, I went for my master's and then life happened and I ended up back in Alabama. I grew up here, but I came back because my parents were getting older and I felt like I needed to be here. Also, they needed to have time with their grandkids. So when I came back here, I just kind of threw myself into to work and such until my mom passed away in 2018. And oh, sorry about that. Thank you. It was, it was really hard. It's still hard every day. She was my best friend. And right. so um, I was really struggling, and I guess I was sort of looking for a diversion. And Stand Up Live was offering a stand-up class. And I was like, you know what? That's always been kind of uh, something nagging at me, like unfinished business. So I decided I was going to take that class so that I could either figure out that I really wasn't good at it, or if I was, decide to see what I could do with that. And so that was kind of my foot in the door there. I guess I did okay, and, um, <laughs> and just kind of haven't looked back since then, just kept kind of pursuing it. Right. That was three years ago. So your your first one here in Huntsville was uh, Stand Up Live. Right. Okay. How did that go? Like every comic, I look back now and I'm like, oh, that was terrible. Oh, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but for a beginner, for where I was at the time, I did well. Yeah, yeah. I, no doubt about it. I mean, you make me laugh really, really hard when I get to see you on stage. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, of course. So your involvement in the Huntsville comedy community, how have you seen that change over the years from your perspective? When I first got involved with the Huntsville scene, predominantly through the class, because the class was taught by um, basically the founders of Huntsville comedy, in my opinion, Scott Eason, Jonathan Craig, Brandon Imes, and Tom Hand mm -hmm. were all you know part of that first class that I took. And just super guys who have always been very helpful, very supportive, very encouraging. So that was kind of my first taste of what Huntsville had going on. And I started to then go see local shows, go to more stand-up live shows, things like that. At the time, my wife and I had a venue in Somerville called the Somerville Playhouse. It was similar to what Shenanigans is, except for kind of like Shenanigans light. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to Shenanigans <laughs> later on. Yes, of course. Yeah, um, because it was, you know, Morgan County, and it's dry and not a very diverse group of people, some of which um, blatantly chose not to support us because mm. of, you know, our, our identity. But then once I saw kind of what Huntsville had going on, I started wanting to become as much a producer as an actual comic. And I was trying to produce a variety of different types of shows. And there weren't very many opportunities available for 
producers to put on shows that weren't either super expensive or weren't you weren't risking your own money up front. So I kind of saw that there was a need there, and I was tired of being in Somerville, and we had a lot of, I guess, equipment and equity built into that business that I saw would be transferable to Huntsville. And my wife, oh, <laughs> she was very hesitant at first because she was very attached to a lot of the people in Somerville. Right. And I, I understood that. Um, but she got on board with us to to come to Huntsville and... I think, you know, overall, she's glad that we did it. She still misses some of the people out there, though. So you are a school teacher by day. Yes. And I want to talk about that a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. Um, can you talk about if there's any crossover between teaching, you know, school children and comedy, if you are able <laughs> to incorporate that into your daily schedule? Well, I think they they do kind of bleed over and overlap to some degree, however, I'm much more serious as a teacher. Mm. And um, as a matter of fact, a lot of my students, when they find out that I do comedy, are kind of shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Although some, okay, so I am as laid back as they allow me to be. Well, if you know teenagers, that doesn't usually end up being very laid back (laughs) because they don't let you be. You know, in order to take care of business, you have to be business-like. Yeah. and sometimes my teaching does carry over into my comedy, mm-hmm. but not a whole lot because I don't want to do anything that would be even the tiniest bit questionable yeah. as far as ethics and morals and such. Um, however, I do plan on um, producing an entire album when I retire. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Called Forget It, I'm Retired. <laughs> so, That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So would you say your experience in comedy and improv, has that helped you as a teacher in any way in the classroom? Absolutely. What's also funny is stand-up and improv are often seen as two very different disciplines as far as comedy goes. Mm-hmm. But love, I love the fact that in Huntsville, we're, we're building a group of people who do both. Mm-hmm. You don't see that a lot, a lot of places because of the separation. However, what I've found and what they have found when I talk to them about it is that each helps the other. For example, when you're a stand-up, when you do improv, it helps you be more in the moment, to think on your feet, to be more spontaneous, which is always a good thing because people, although I think cognitively, people understand that stand-up comics have a routine that they've memorized and repeat they like for it to feel as though it's the first time you've ever said it. Right. And in order to deliver that type of entertainment, improv really helps with that. So that's kind of similar to delivering the same lesson to a different set of kids all day. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And being flexible and thinking on your feet because you never know what's going to happen in a school day. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there are a million variables that you have zero control over. Right. Yeah. So that spontaneity has always been. And I, this is my 27th year of teaching. Mm -hmm. 
So it's nothing for me. Like, I feel like teaching has helped me perform because mm. I'm used to talking in front of people. Right. That, you know, that's nothing. Gives you that public me. speaking. So, yeah. <laughs> cross that off the list. And you're also a parent. I am. Yes. Congratulations. Belated. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, they're three teenagers. So, that's real belated. Thanks, Katie. <laughs> you're welcome, Kimberly. No. A decade um, and a half late, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think a decade ago I graduated high school. So. Oh, that's, that's painful. Ouch. Um, sorry. You sound like my sorry. wife. No. <laughs> She's 15 years younger than me, and she will never let me forget it, ever. I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Lies. You are a parent, <laughs> as we've established. Yes. What do they think of your comedy? They they like it. For, they don't get to hear much of it because it's yeah. predominantly <laughs> a little raunchy. Yeah, it's predominantly R rated. But you do have the Turnip and Gilletta show. Yes, as well. and you know they PJ. get to see me be goofy, and mm-hmm. and they have um, seen tastes of it mm-hmm. different places. But they like the fact that I do it. And as a matter of fact, when I told my youngest son, I picked him up from school today, and he's like, "What are you doing tonight?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to." interview for a radio show he's like wow i'm proud of you (laughs) it was so cute (laughs) it was so sweet yeah oh my god i'm well we're happy to have you here and okay let's talk about shenanigans okay so you co-founded that with jesse right jesse pollard jesse pollard and jessica and jessica yeah the three of us are co-owners right and um the biggest thing you know i already talked about the desire to move to a different area to be able to do more of Mm -hmm. what i really wanted to do and um i felt like being in an area where we could sell alcohol Mm -hmm. would be beneficial to you know, the type of environment that you would usually find in a in a comedy show of any kind. And and Huntsville is pretty diverse, as you mentioned before. Oh, you wanted absolutely. to, you know, improve that as well. Yeah. And but our one of the things that we kind of messed up on, if you will, or didn't realize at the time when we were in Somerville, is we did all of that as an LLC and, you know, just kind of bootstrapped it. But mm-hmm. We always had a heart to be more like a nonprofit than a for-profit business. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know how much you know about small business, but it's not impossible, but it's almost impossible once you have established a for-profit business to like shift that and change it into a nonprofit is very difficult. Mm -hmm. So when we started to think about shenanigans, we knew right off the bat that we wanted it to be a nonprofit Mm -hmm. because we were looking to fill that need that I referred to earlier to give performers and producers a place to be able to create and to grow and to have access. And like our mission statement is that we want to make the arts accessible to everyone, but especially comedy. Right. So what, that's why we keep ticket prices low. We keep concession prices as low as we can to keep the doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at, at this moment, nobody's paid. You know, we, we hope to be able to build that in to some degree in the future so that maybe get a grant or something yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i'm i'm always trying for grants in my spare time yeah air quotes for the radio that's nice (laughs) (laughs) i can confirm she just did air quotes (laughs) but yeah we're we would like to you know be able to have 
a little gas money, you right. know. But as it is right now, we're in, uh, you know, year almost, we're about to go into year three. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, we're all doing it for the love of the of the art. Yeah. And um, we are making good on our mission because we really try to work with local producers. If they have an idea, they'll bring it to us and they're like, hey, this is a show idea. And I'm like, I love it. Do you want to produce it? Do you want me to produce it? Mm-hmm. You know, do you want us to work together? And, you know, we work on essentially doing things like door splits with them so that they're not risking their own money Mm -hmm. um, and giving them opportunities that they don't find anywhere else. So that that really is something we love. But we also um, Jessica has established what she calls the weird kids club. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And and that's because our kids that we referred to earlier are very weird. Mm -hmm. We say that weird is our favorite compliment. Yeah. And um, essentially we have in in our own family, we have varying degrees of kids with, um, you know, neurodivergent issues, ADD, ADHD, you know, this, that, and the other, Mm -hmm. and just don't fit into the, the classic you know, mold. Right. And we wanted them to be able to meet other people like them. And if you know anything about awkwardness and introverts, it's not easy to meet others like yourself. Yep. <laughs> so Jessica's like, well, I'm going to start a club. And she did. And it is going gangbusters and love it. And they, the kids that are going there are, mm-hmm. are finding kindred spirits. And it's, it's a really cool thing. That's awesome. And that's a hundred percent free. She just does like a meetup once a month and they, um, they do different things around, but the sh- once a month she'll have them come to shenanigans and she'll like put a movie on in a theater and have tables set out for crafts or drawing or yeah. you know magic the gathering or D <laughs> or whatever else mm-hmm. and just let them all hang out together nice nice yeah now how did you and jessica meet jesse well i met jesse when i was starting out in stand-up because we would do these um kind of workshops where you would try out jokes and get feedback from them. And he started coming to some of those. Okay. And that's how we we first met. And then we were both frequenting the now defunct um, open mic at Wish You Were Beer. <laughs> right, right. And he ended up hosting that. And that's when that was right around the time that we decided that we would do this. And he had had some experience in uh, starting nonprofits before. Oh, okay. So that I didn't was, know that. Yeah, he, I forget exactly what it was. I remember something about um, you know getting prom dresses for people. Okay. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know exactly <laughs> what he did, but hmm. he had gone through the process prior, so mm-hmm. he had some knowledge and some connections that helped us to get that going. Yeah, and you've also brought a few other key people on board. Can you talk about them for a bit with shenanigans? Yeah, well, we have uh, board members, Alana Henley and Jason Sims. And um, it's weird because, like, our board is, they started out all here, and now they're going places. So we may have some board (laughs) positions open. Anyway, (laughs) we just kind of have really tried, as is our nature, to build a family at Shenanigans. So um, we work with volunteers. Thank you. We love you. We work with volunteers all the time because we can't pay anybody. Right. 
but we have to have people run concessions and run the door and all that kind of stuff. And so those folks are like family because they step up and step in and help out. And, mm-hmm. you know, essentially it's a bunch of people that believe in it like we do. You know, they see hmm. the good in it. They see the the mission. They believe in the mission. They've personally benefited from uh, our being there. And so they're they're on board with us, too. So let's talk about COVID. Everybody's Ugh. favorite subject. Yeah, I know. I, we have to do it. We have to okay. talk about it. I'm sorry, Kimberly. <laughs> <laughs> so when COVID hit last year, that took a toll on all kinds of businesses, all kinds of people. Yeah. And for shenanigans, you guys adapted pretty well, it seemed, uh, bringing everything outdoors having those, uh, you know, where you have to honk your horn if you're laughing. Can you talk about how you adapted? Well, we tried. We'll put it that way. Okay. And it's funny because this ended up being a huge thing that Bert Kreischer gets credit for, but I'm pretty sure he must be stalking my Facebook because, <laughs> <laughs> because we, to my knowledge, were the first that I had ever heard of that did drive-in comedy shows. Okay. And we did it off the back-loading dock at Shenanigans, and mm-hmm. people would back their cars into our back parking lot. We had an FM transmitter that went in through their car radio, and um, we actually asked them not to honk their horns where we were. Oh, flashing the lights. I'm That's sorry. Right. Yeah, that was my because fault. Because we, we butt up against the drive through at Wendy's, and we didn't think we'd be very good neighbors <laughs> <laughs> if they were trying to order like their four for fry. four. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I want to get a junior back. That must have been real funny. But anyway, so yeah, we had people flashing their lights as right. feedback. And for what it was, it was fun. Um, and we also, for a little while, did... Um, drive-through jokes <laughs> so, <laughs> Talk <about> that, please. <laughs> well that was our like outreach we wanted to try to bring people some laughter for nothing and so jessica and i just wrote down a whole bunch of really dumb g-rated <laughs> dad jokes on index cards and stood out in the back parking lot and had people just drive through and using that same fm transmitter we would just tell them and their kids really stupid jokes just mm-hmm. so they would laugh because everybody was terrified. It was at the very beginning of the pandemic. Well, that's something everybody needs is a good laugh yeah, during something exactly. so scary like that. And that, yeah. I think that's brilliant. I think it's perfect. Um, so, but then, you know, we, we got shut down and we couldn't do any of those things mm-hmm. for a while. Um, yeah, and how did was, that evolve to this year? Well, um, we just kind of went along with what the governor said we could do. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were in the last class of people that was allowed to open our doors again, okay. which, of course, you know, put us put us in debt. We had a we do have still an EIDL loan. Mm-hmm. And um, but that allowed us to, to keep our doors open. We've since gotten some grants that we're very grateful for that have continued to help us keep our doors open. Though, you know, it still feels like never secure enough, (laughs) Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense, because we're still very uncertain as to what COVID's going to do. As soon as the governor said that we could seat at 50% capacity, that's exactly what we did. Mm -hmm. And even when the mask mandate lifted and, and a lot of other businesses just threw the doors wide open in April... Because that was the very beginning of vaccinations, mm-hmm. we chose to try to find, we didn't want to fight people over right. masks, you know? Like, we see the benefit of it, and we were glad to support it when it was mandatory, mm-hmm. but we just didn't want to spend our time or energy in a negative way, mm-hmm. you know? So what we decided we were going to do, and we did, 
is um, when the mask mandate was lifted, we just kept seating still at 50% capacity so that people had the opportunity to social distance. Right. Then um, we increased our seating capacity slowly as more and more people had the opportunity to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So each month we would go up. So we went from 50% to 75% and then finally to 100%. Right, right. Yeah. We've already established you're a school teacher, so I want to talk about these improv classes that you have going on on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Can you compare teaching school children to teaching a class of people who are aspiring comedians? Yes, and just to throw this in the mix because okay. it has it is relevant. For seven years um, after I got my master's degree at the University of Texas, I was in Austin. And for seven years was an assistant principal at a huge high school. And I really enjoyed that work. Um, When I came back to Alabama, I couldn't find administrative work. So I went back into the classroom to teach, which is fine. I, I still love it as well. But what I can tell you about teachers, teachers are the worst students Ever. When I was an assistant principal, I was in charge of professional development mm-hmm. and presenting to these grown-ups. There's air quotes again. <laughs> um, because, and the teachers who were the hardest on the kids about things like cell phones, talking, etc., behave in that exact same way when they're the students in the, in the scenario. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely frustrating being a teacher to those adults. In improv class, it's fun because mm-hmm. that's the whole purpose of improv is to Play help games people. With each other. Yeah, yeah, and to help people get out of their heads and become more comfortable and just be mm-hmm. silly and goofy and be childlike again. Yeah, and um, that's that's fantastic. And I'm we are having our first graduation show for Mm. this one that just ended Thursday. Oh, cool. And we're starting a new level one improv class on August 29th. It's six two-hour classes on Sundays starting on August 29th. We skip Labor Day weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, so then the five after that. And it's 180 bucks, and it's a ton of fun, and we will have a culminating graduation show, so you can invite your people to come see what you've learned and, you know, make people you know and like laugh Mm -hmm. and just have a good time. Or sort of like. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The more the merrier, you know. That's it. So before I ask you the questions that I ask every comedian who comes in here for this segment, I want you to talk about what your favorite thing about running shenanigans is and your favorite thing about being a comedian. My favorite thing about running shenanigans is figuring out what people like and watching my ideas grow. Mm -hmm. I've had a number of show ideas that when produced have turned out really well and i love that i Mm -hmm. love when something i've dreamed up or created brings joy to people and my favorite thing about being a comic is having the ability to get people away from their daily troubles just to laugh for a minute yeah. Especially in times like this when people really need to... These unprecedented um, times. Oh, that phrase. <laughs> 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 but just to, to let them forget about their real life for a minute yeah. and just feel decent, you know?
So the first of the last few questions here, do you have any hidden talents to share, <laughs> to talk of? <laughs> well, I can play the nose flute. What? <laughs> this is a thing? <laughs> yeah, I, I hate that I don't have one. Um, but yes, I can play the nose flute. Maybe somebody can bring you one at shenanigans. Hopefully not used. <laughs> yeah, but, no. oh God. <laughs> I, I shall not use, a, use nose flute. Um, <laughs> I can juggle. Okay. Not well, but I can. And, Better than me. Well, I had a TikTok thing called okay. Juggling Weird Stuff Badly <laughs> um, for a while. <laughs> and um, I can play the drums. I was a percussionist in, nice. in the band. I have decent Again, rhythm for an old white lady. <laughs> <laughs> You're not old. <laughs> so what is your favorite corny joke? A duck walks into a bar, and he goes up to the bartender. He says, hey, you got any grapes? And the bartender says, no. Plus, we don't serve ducks in here. Get out of here. Duck gets all offended. He's like, well, fine. So he leaves. Next day, he comes back in. He's like, hey, you got any grapes? Mm -hmm. Bartender's like, no, I already told you no. We still don't have grapes. We're not going to have grapes. Get out of here. Don't come back. Fine. Whatever. So the duck leaves, and duck comes back. He's like, hey, you got any grapes? Bartender says, look, I've already told you no multiple times. If you come back in here again, I'm going to staple your feet to the floor. <laughs> the duck's like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fine. Whatever. So he leaves. Next day, Duck comes back in the bar and he goes, Hey, you got any staples? <laughs> Bartender says, No. Great. You got any grapes? <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> so you said corny. There it is. Oh, that, that was great. <laughs> oh, man. That's dedicated to my wife. From the latest edition of Funny You Should Ask on the Arch Underground, that was host Katie Ganaway talking with local comedian Kimberly Wilson. Hope you had a laugh or two, or three. This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. In our final segment, we feature part of an interview that aired this week during our local classical and classic music show, Morning Blend, which you can enjoy weekdays between 9 and noon. Host Tom Freilich sat down with Kevin Lay and Aaron Hulskamp Boone to talk about a unique chamber music concert coming up this Sunday at 3 p.m. at Asbury Church on Hughes Road in Madison. The concert is titled Palestrina to Polink, giving you a hint of the kind of music you'll hear. The public is invited to attend. This concert features rarely performed pieces and unusual instrumentation. Kevin Lay says it is a collaborative effort between several local musical groups. There's uh, the Rocket City Vials, uh, who uh, Dorothy McGuire and I play in, and that's a group formed about four years ago. And we are all viola de gambas, and we get together and play four, five, six, seven, eight part music, all in consort, different size instruments. And uh, that is um, what's represented by just Dorothy and I. But then we decided to collaborate for this concert with two violinists and the, the Marino Sisters, who are uh, wonderful violinists, and I play with them in the Scholl Symphony, and they sound really good together. They're, they're sisters, so <laughs> they get to practice a lot together. And they have an ensemble called Strings of Pearl, and uh, where they collaborate with a harp player, with uh, pianists and different people, and mostly representing or supporting the uh, military 
uh, events. Like I just played with them for the Space and Missile Defense Symposium. Oh, cool. cool. And so the four of us uh, form a really wonderful string quartet, which is technically in mixed consort since there's two different types of string instruments represented, but there's precedent for that, so it's it's a good ensemble. Before turning to Aaron, I want to go back to the, the gamba business because there are probably people listening that don't know the difference between violins, family instruments, and gamba family instruments. Can you explain really briefly? Yeah, so there's this um, mystery about the viola de gamba. People always go, viola de what? <laughs> um, and there's different ways to uh, describe the instrument, different nicknames. So um, viola da gamba, um, it, you take viola, that means stringed instrument that's bowed, you know, you played with a bow. Da gamba just means the leg. So that's the full name of the instrument. And it has six strings, like a guitar, and frets like a guitar, or like a lute also. Whereas the violin um, just has four strings. Right. And all, or all the instruments in the violin family, viola, cello, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And the viola da gamba family, like the violin family, has different instruments. It has the double bass, the bass, tenor, alto, and, and treble, and different sizes. And the frets on the instrument, just like the guitar family and the lute family, are not there to tell you where to put your fingers, as a lot of people might uh, imagine. Uh, it helps, but uh, it actually can be a challenge because you have to kind of fight with the frets. Um, <clears throat> they're there to lift the string off the fingerboard and let the string vibrate so that it will vibrate longer, and that will create a more resonant sound. Um, so the viola gamba family is also tuned in fourths, like a guitar, uh, whereas the violin family, the strings are tuned in fifths. I didn't realize that about the gamba family. Yeah. So if you if you think of the scale, you know, a C major scale, C D E F G, well, from C to G, that's a fifth. Mm -hmm. So you would have like on a cello, the lowest string would be a C, then G would be the next string up. Well, on a viola gamba, it would be a fourth, so it would be an F instead. Okay. Well, being an ex-cellist, I've always been interested in the gamba, and I love the gamba because I love early music, but I never knew that about the gamba. So right. Interesting. <laughs> so you're saying gamba, which is a nickname for the viola gamba. Right. So there's also another nickname for the gamba, and it's viol. So if you hear that, you might think, well, violin? Well, no, if it's just viol without the N at the end, it's referring to the viola gamba. Also, okay. and if you were in Europe, you you know, if you were French, particularly, you would say viol instead right. of a viol. Okay. But they're all kind of interchangeable. Yeah, words. it's just yeah. like a nickname for yeah. somebody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's switch over to Aaron for a minute. We're leaving her out of the conversation here. Welcome to you, Aaron. Hello. I just love listening to Kevin talk about all of the early music that he has so much knowledge about. So I'm happy to listen. Really excited to have him join us on this concert. Well, tell me about what you're doing on the concert. Sure. So I am a flutist, mm -hmm. among other things, and um, I will be playing a movement from the Bach Flute Sonata in E minor. I'll be playing the third movement, um, which is really simply gorgeous. And it's interesting because uh, it's not romantic. Bach is not romantic. Bach is uh, you know, he's more of a Baroque style, of course. But this movement has a very sort of romantic bent to it. And as a modern flutist, um, I don't know, I, I have a sort of uh, urge to move in that direction. It has almost like cadenza-like moments where I'm kind of allowed to, as the flutist, 
kind of allowed to play it very freely. And, and that's part of Baroque music, but not the part that you think of. Um, when you think of Bach, you think of these sort of moving uh, harmonic changes that happen from measure to measure. And, and that happens too. But this, this movement is really beautiful and melodic and has a sort of romantic feel to it, which I think is exciting. Um, I'm the orchestra director over at Asbury, and Asbury is, of course, um, uh, working with us to put on this concert. And in addition to myself, uh, Kenneth Watson, who is our traditional worship director, is performing as well on the Poulenc. So it's the Poulenc, uh, what is it, sonata for oboe, bassoon, and piano. It's the trio for oboe, oh, bassoon, trio. and piano. Yes, yes, I played it on my show because I play a lot of Poulenc. I'm a big pooling fan. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for correcting me. Yes. Yes. I want to be accurate. Um, and so we're working with Kenneth on that. Um, and he's our, like I said, he's our traditional worship director over at Asbury. But what you may not know is that he's also a fabulous pianist. He's He's got a master's degree from Juilliard. So he's uh, really wonderful, which is great because the Poulenc has an unbelievably challenging piano part, as well as an unbelievably challenging oboe and bassoon part. The oboe goes so high in this piece that I just, I listen to it and I'm like, is that an oboe or is that a flute? Who's playing that? Um, but we're very lucky to have Laura Lay, who is a professor over at UNA and plays with many, many other groups. And Kevin can speak more to that. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I was going to ask about that since you have the same last name. Yes, yeah. she's fabulous. We have her playing. And then uh, Ben McCauley, who's the professor of bassoon over at UAH, is also playing. So really um, just top-notch performers all around. I think that uh, anybody who decides to come to this concert is really going to be in for a treat. Wonderful. Well, yeah, I, you, you told me to, to ask my wife to give. Kenneth uh, a really hard part. So Don't said, tell well. him that. Don't she tell said, him well, that. I, I really want to play the Poulenc, and yeah, if he can do it. Who picked the Poulenc? My wife. She, she did? Uh, that's you know why she's doing this uh, for free for a you know benefit concert, um, because it's a passion of hers. Yeah, that's a piece that hardly gets played because the piano part's so hard. Well, so. I find with Poulenc, it's it's either one or the other. It's either really easy, sight-readable stuff, or it's just impossibly difficult. So, yes. So, yeah. your wife plays the pianist. What is her background? Uh, well, she has a master's in oboe performance from Florida State, and she teaches at UNA. And oh, she's she, the oboist. She's I the was oboist, un- Okay, yeah. I was understanding yeah, that she yeah. was the pianist. Oh, no, no. Yeah, she's the okay. oboe All professor. Right. Yeah. Does she specialize in early music like you do? Yeah, that's how we met. We were both studying at Florida State, and she was playing Baroque oboe and studying musicology, and I was there to study musicology and to teach viola gamba at Florida State. And, uh, yeah, we met, and we got engaged right away. <laughs> oh. Sometimes that's the best way. Right, right. That happened to me, too. <laughs> Let me ask you this. As far as the music you're playing, tell me about how you went about choosing the particular pieces. I mean, you said you chose the Poulenc because it was just incredibly difficult for everybody, and that's always a good challenge. But what about some of the early music? I mean, to me, the program is so eclectic with, you know, 16th, 18th, 19th, 20th century music. I mean, who put all this together, and and how did you come up with these choices? Well, it kind of started with the idea of uh, collaborating with the two violinists, the Marino sisters, Mm -hmm. Becky and Nikki, uh, because I wanted to uh, create, uh, we really created a new ensemble, uh, Madison Early Music Project. Um, the idea of having a core group uh, who is passionate about early music and is knowledgeable, 
and who brings in uh, other people to work with. And that's what I did when I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, a couple of friends and I started the Knoxville Early Music Project, and it's still going uh, 25 years or so later. Wonderful. And uh, so that that idea of oh, collaborating with, with other musicians. So what we've done here is we've collaborated with the soprano, wonderful soprano Katie Buckner, who just graduated from USM. And so she will be singing with us. Um, so we'll have a, a consort of vials, four string players, uh, accompanying a soprano. And we're, for those pieces, we're doing the William Byrd consort songs and also a John Dallin piece, Flow My Tears, which is just wonderful. I'm interested in hearing about all this early music stuff going on here because, as I think I said, I'm relatively new to Huntsville. I've been here less than two years, and I've not been aware of very much early music going on. I guess part of it's because of COVID, you know, but yeah. but still, uh, I'm glad to know that there's some early music going on because that's kind of my thing. Yeah, there, there is early music going on consistently every year, actually, with the Valley Conservatory. Uh, that's where I teach, and we've had uh, an early music festival concert, uh, at least one concert per year, sometimes two or three, for about seven years now. Um, and it's usually at the St. Mary's Church. We've also played uh -huh. at uh, St. Thomas and some other places. Um, but yeah, um, that's definitely uh, consistently uh, we're doing early music every year, and we're going to actually uh, increase that to uh, work with um, getting together a broke orchestra and, oh, and kind of increasing. And another thing we're doing with this brand new group we formed, the Mass and Early Music Project, is collaborating with UH, um, working. Um, with their production of Dido and Aeneas that's coming up in oh, November, okay. a Baroque opera. You mentioned um, <laughs> Dowland and some singing, so why don't we listen to some singing? Who is this going to be singing on this recording? Uh, I think that's Emma Kirkby. Oh, Emma Kirkby. Yeah. I love Emma Kirkby. Yeah, she's uh, And what is she going to be singing? Uh, well, it's the, the the track that I wrote down. Okay. There. Right. I just what I did was I, I found an example of um, something very similar to what we're going to be doing. Okay. The flow of my tears, but um, you know it's nice to hear something that's similar and then to actually hear something new something when you come new, to the exactly. live well, performance. This is called "Sorrow Stay" by Dowland. Oh yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it's a great piece. Let's listen to it now. That was Morning Blend host Tom Freilich interviewing Kevin Lay and Aaron Hulescamp Boone about Palestrina to Polink, a super cool and super unusual chamber music concert happening this Sunday at 3 p.m. at Asbury Church on Hughes Road in Madison. The concert is open to the public, and you can hear this full interview on our website at wlrh.org. Thanks to them for sharing. Also thanks to Vice President of Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, Dr. Neil Lamb, for providing us with some solid info on the latest COVID news. And thanks to super producer Katie Ganaway, who hosts the Arts Underground, among other things, and her guest, Kimberly Wilson, who appeared in the latest version of Funny You Should Ask. You can find all of this content on our website, wlrh.org, and find a podcast of this episode under Programs. Just look for the Public Radio Hour. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. Pity, pity, pity. Pity, pity, pity.